0: Welcome to Positive Impact with Andrew Schultz.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to Positive Impact. Today I have a very special guest, Dr. Andrew Seifeld. He is the medical director, emergency department at Spear Memorial Hospital in New Hampshire. And he is the first official, first ever pair of siblings that I've had on this podcast. I had Andrew's identical twin brother Matt on the on as a guest almost exactly a year ago in episode 107. So Dr. Andrew Seafeld, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So excited to speak some
1: recovery. Good stuff um no nobody better to have on it's a new year people are sober curious people are thriving in recovery others listening throughout the world are just they can't get off their cell phone so i'm really excited to have you on uh dr andrew and we're going to talk about emotional sobriety and the science of addiction but first and foremost i really want to acknowledge you for your service, especially working on ground zero over the last two and a half years with the pandemic and, you know, in the emergency room and um, you and all the healthcare uh, workers, man, I, I really appreciate you and want to acknowledge you.
0: I appreciate that. And, and all the healthcare workers appreciate that, Andrew. You know, if you want to, it's funny, you bring up emotional sobriety and we'll get into the nitty gritty and If you want to test your emotional sobriety, take on a medical directorship in the middle of a pandemic of an ER. So uh, I couldn't have done anything that I do today if I wasn't emotionally sober. And it starts with being physically sober.
1: Absolutely. All right. So let's jump into it. What the hell is emotional sobriety?
0: Yeah, emotional sobriety, it's interesting. You hear this term kind of batted around. Uh, you hear it, um, you hear it associated with um, Bill Will, um, Bill W and and um, the AA. And if you google emotional sobriety, you get some, you know, variability uh, on it. You know, emotional sobriety to me is is being able to sit in the emotional state I'm sitting in right now, right in the moment. Good, bad, right, wrong, whatever I'm feeling and be okay with that. It's it's not having the desire or, or choosing to distract from the emotional state. You know, distraction is, is where we have our breakdowns as recovering drug addicts, alcoholics, behavioral, whatever whatever your vice is, that's the problem. We, we, we distract from it. We distract from our emotions, which come from our thoughts. So emotional sobriety on the front end is being able to just be okay with how I'm feeling today, no matter what that feeling is. I, I add a little spin to it. For me, emotional sobriety is about asking a question. Why? Why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? I'm a very, my recovery is very active. And going back into my past, starting when I was probably one, maybe even earlier, you know, I've had experiences since I was born. I'm an identical twin. I grew up in this type of household, that type of educational environment, all these circumstances, they shape the way I think. And subsequently shape the way i feel and that's where the breakdown occurs in in when we speak about addiction it's not so much the alcohol or the drugs or the social media or the gambling or the sex or whatever behavior you want to associate it's an upstream issue and so emotional sobriety is kind of a term i use for attacking maybe maybe choose a, a more adaptive word you know just understanding why I feel the way I do, which comes from why I think the way I do. And that comes from childhood. That comes from years of, you know, being raised in certain environments and hearing certain agendas and experiences. And I'll add one more thing with emotional sobriety is that when we talk about our thoughts and our emotions, we always associate behavior. Mm-hmm. And we know if you're an alcoholic, the behavior that is alcoholism, which is drinking alcohol, that is a problem. So the question is, is what's the behavior that's associated for an emotionally sober human? When I'm being emotionally sober at work, what is my behavior? And that comes down to one word, accountability. It's identifying that I'm the one creating my emotional state from my thinking pattern and then outing myself in real time usually And once I've actually externalized that component, you know, and I'll give you an example. I'm at work. A nurse says something, then I use what she said to make myself a bad doctor. I didn't do it right. That's a a thought addiction. I didn't do it right. The emotional addiction there usually for me is sadness. The behavior of accountability is to take the nurse's side and say, hey, you just said this. I made it mean that. And I'm sorry for using you that is transformative that radical honesty is slowly but surely if it's done continuously it's going to reshape the part of the brain that wants to keep me sick mm. and not to get too cerebral but that's the limbic system that's our memory and our emotional center and that's that's part of recovery for me i've been doing this work you know basically since i got sober you know i'm coming up on fo- five years and i've been i've been accountable to this mechanism for at least four of those years. And my experience in life is so different today. I don't get amped up the way I used to. I can have conversations in chaotic environment with chaotic emotional people, and I can be okay. And I can actually drive solution. That's the real goal here is that how do I keep improving? The caveat to emotional sobriety is you can lose it very easily. Humans are going to relapse quickly if you don't stay in the conversation of what emotional sobriety is. I can do it on a day-to-day basis. So creating a group around you, you know, my family does this work. My wife does this work. My wife's not alcoholic. She's not a drug addict. She's what we would term as, you know, normie, whatever that really means. And she does the emotional sobriety work because she identified early on that, that she has addictions to things like anger. And that comes from childhood trauma of not feeling important you know and you'll hear childhood trauma a lot and when i say childhood trauma trauma is one of those words that you know i think it triggers a lot of people adverse childhood experiences which is a a well studied doctrine now understanding that what we experience as children shapes who we become in this world it can shape us on a mental level cognitive and it can shape us physically and And we have proven this is evidence-based that you know children that are raised in in toxic stress, they are more likely to develop substance abuse issues, um health problems, obesity, you know, uh, diabetes, all of these 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 physical manifestations that come from lots of emotional trauma and sexual trauma and physical trauma. So that's a part of this whole, this whole conversation. So
1: let's stay there right there. That's a great segue because um, in listening to your, you know, you have a couple, you have a, a talk that you gave that really, you know, it's a 50 minute talk. And in that talk, Dr. Andrew, you talk about, you know, why do we come, why do we become addicted genetics, brain circuits, neurochemistry, environment, and you say all those contribute, but ninety nine percent is due to adverse childhood experiences.
0: yeah, and i I would say, you know, it's probably not ninety nine percent. you know, i'm not a, I'm not a neuros you know psychiatrist. i'm I'm certainly not a neurophysiologist. This is what i this is the way I look at it. What can I control today? Can I control my genetics? Not yet. I have not figured out, or we in science and medicine have not figured out how to go into our brains and our, our biomes and actually change our genetic code and all that to, to change the, the the processes of the brain. So let's just check that one off. You know, nature and nurture is really what you're asking. And this concept of nature, which is, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, you know, why am I a depressed human being? I'd say it's family. It's genetics. My my family's are, you know, our family history is all about depression, you know, maybe comes from perfectionism and not quote doing it right. But either way, we, we develop an emotional addiction to depression. So it has to be, it has to be genetic. Well, not, not so much anymore. You know what I'm seeing and I'm seeing this not just scientifically, but anecdotally in my own life. And I'm seeing my children, you know, that are being raised in certain environments and, and what they're developing. The nurture aspect is, is so much more profound to me. And it's something that I can actually control. I can control who I'm being in this world today. I can control how I'm parenting the words I choose, the willingness to have tough conversations, but do it in ways that are allowing for others to, to, you know, facilitate their growth, you know, and not my, my selfish agenda. So, so yes, you know, percentages aside, I think adverse childhood experiences, which is really the hallmark of why we develop addictive behaviors. Look, human beings, by our very nature, are relief-seeking missiles. I say it in my talk. I think I have a little slide. It, it, it's, it's. find me a person that goes out to the world every day to find pain. They, there are some people, I just listened to a podcast with David Goggins. That guy does a great job of finding pain. I give it to him, you know, and I would say that for the majority of us, we want to feel comfortable Life isn't comfortable. It's okay to feel emotional pain. And to understand where that comes from is where our growth exists. My growth doesn't exist in living every day comfortable. I get complacent and I don't build amazing things. So this idea that we have to be comfortable, our kids have to always be comfortable. This is why the trophy generation is such a problem. You know, every kid gets a trophy. What are we setting our kids up for? Life isn't a isn't gonna give trophies to everyone. I worked my, my tail off to get a, a doctorate in medicine. And then I went, you know, worked my tail off to, to graduate from a great residency program and then board certification and so on and so forth. I mean, I didn't get trophies on everything I did. I failed a lot. You know, and then you get into my, my addiction history and it's like, wow, you could look at 10 years of my life as a failure. You know, I like to look at it through the lens of opportunity to learn and to grow and to help others not have to see and deal what I dealt with. You know, people ask me why I do this work. It's not just for me to stay sober. It's so that I can prevent the next guy from going down the rabbit hole that I did, knowing that there is a solution. You don't have to kill yourself. I tried, you don't have to be homeless with a passport, no passport in Bangkok, Thailand. I did that. You don't have to be admitted to three different ICUs in three different countries, you know, DTing on God knows what drugs or alcohol. Been there, done that, check that off, survived. Awesome, I'm stoked that I survived. I'm an emergency doctor. Every single day of my life, I see at least one or two suffering human that is you know, using alcohol and drugs and problematic behaviors to quiet down a storm that's in their brain that storm has solution we can work with it we just have to have the resources to do it so i don't want to get too far off topic but i'm passionate about this stuff as you can tell
1: which is why you're on man and i love it <laughs> one of the things that you said it goes back to you know being accountable and verbalizing and saying out loud something like and you also gave an example of um when you gave your talk about you know the thoughts and emotions you were feeling before your talk to that group that I watched on YouTube, and in your words, um, you know the, the 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 thoughts of I'm not good enough, I'm unlovable, I need to be liked, I can't do anything right. Like th- those are the th- same thoughts that came up for me today before you and I pushed play and re- started recording this podcast. My thoughts today were, nobody's going to listen. My podcast isn't good. Other podcasts are better. Who am I? And I had those same thoughts and those same feelings. And just like you, I my behavior was the opposite of what those thoughts were. My behavior is I, I showed up. I suited up. I'm verbalizing it out loud loud, so my thoughts and emotions and feelings don't dictate my behaviors. And I think it's so important, Dr. Andrew, for people listening because we are not our thoughts. We are not our feelings. And we have the power of choice still to determine our behaviors. Yes? 100%.
0: And so the DSM-5 doesn't like people like me. the DSM tries to categorize everyone into a diagnosis so you have you know depressive disorders, you have opiate use disorders you have I I personally would get rid of all of those diagnoses. Like, I, I don't see any I don't see any value in in defining myself as an alcoholic or a drug addict. What I would say is that this humans are thought addicts. We all are, we have thinking addictions and, and that's what you brought up. I'm not lovable. I'm not important. These are stories that we learn to tell ourselves when we're one or two or three years of age. You know, here's an example. I'm an identical twin. My mother, my dad was working all the time, you know cause he's supporting the family financially. Mom was doing it as best as she could. But let's play this forward. You've got a busy household. Mom's trying to take care of the household. You got two crying twins. You know, Matt probably cried more than me. I'm just kidding. That's for you, Maddie. I love you. So you have two crying twins, and now we have choice, right? Mom's got to pick one of us up. So let's say she goes and picks up Nat, and she, so right then and there, I get this little, little, little part of my limbic system that starts to get wired. Not important. Not lovable. Maybe it doesn't happen on day one, but if the, if that circuit continues, if you grow up in a family where both parents are working just to survive and pr- provide that that child is going to learn this, that they're not important and not lovable. Is there any truth to that? No, the, the families, actually, the parents are loving them by working so hard. You know, my dad was loving me every time he told me I didn't do it right. Because to him, perfection is the key and perfection would make me successful. Mm-hmm. I've held that resentment and drank over that for years and drugged over that, that I can't do it right. I can never do it right. I went to medical school and I'm still not good enough. You know, today, I love my father for it. I love my mother for, for what they they did for me because what they did do is they 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 instilled in me a circuit, a circuit of, of an, a, a focused obsessive circuit that if I'm using it in a manner that's consistent with moving forward in this life and building great things I can do. Mm. Now that circuit got hijacked. And this might help, you know, this this, We what can talk a little bit about what what I mean by hijacked is that the the brain circuit in addiction, when we're talking about alcoholism, drug addiction, social media addiction, just like drug addiction. So don't kid yourself. The cell phone is someone else's fentanyl. Okay, Mm. it doesn't have necessarily the same consequences, but the disconnection from self and others is absolutely there. Go look at a family dinner in twenty twenty three. Yeah. And everyone's on their cell phones. There's no connection. Just like dad, you know, drinking himself into oblivion or mom or whatnot. So the reality is, is, is behaviors, and you can list them exercise, you know, the all these behaviors that we, we enroll ourselves in to quiet down the emotions that come from our thinking patterns. And really, the the line in the sand is, because people ask me this all the time, well, I'm not alcoholic, you know, well, great. What's the line in the sand? It's simple for me. If you're continuing a compulsive behavior and you have negative consequences and you're still continuing, that's a problem. If you're not showing up for your kid because you're on Twitter or Instagram, you know, having to see, you know, how many likes you have or whatnot, that's a problem. That's a breakdown in your life. So, So that's something to look at. The reward circuit was really important for us to be here in 2023 because if we didn't have a reward circuit, we wouldn't be here. We would have all died out as cavemen. So it's important that the brain has some mechanism to say, go eat food, go stay warm with others, go propagate sexually so we can continue to exist, you know, so there's a mechanism in our brain that's valuable there. It's valuable for survival, but drugs, alcohol behaviors can hijack it. And I actually get rid of the whole concept of substance use disorder. What I really look at is I say thoughts, emotions, and behaviors because alcoholic, yes, alcohol is the substance, but drinking alcohol is a behavior that I'm enrolling myself in to quiet down my emotional pain. So I just think of it as very simply, oh, it's a behavior,
1: that's it. (laughs) So So let's break that down down because there's thought, for people listening, I wanna get really clear on this. There's thought addictions. Thought addictions, examples of those are I need to be liked, I can't do anything right, I'm unlovable, I'm not good enough. And then we have the emotional addictions, anxiety, depression, victim, playing the victim, self, self-righteous.
0: I know that one to a T. <laughs>
1: And then there is the behavior addictions, which is using drugs, which I love because you, you specify it's an action using drugs, snorting cocaine, injecting heroin, eating or not eating. I work with a lot of my coaching clients who have, you know, eating disorders. And so, and then there's enabling, which I didn't even realize until I watched your speech enabling is a behavior addiction and then social media and gaming
0: yeah and there's plenty more there you know uh, i I like i you know and again my goal isn't to take stuff away from people I'm, i'm just asking us as a society to consider that we're missing the big picture here you know the big picture is that the thought addictions lead to emotional addictions I I speak from experience. I grew up in a perfectionistic family where I was continuously told I could do it better. So to a five-year-old or a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old who's continuously hit with the I can do better, and and, and I'm sure I could, that negative self-talk, I didn't do it right again, gets encoded into my brain. And the emotional state for me was sadness. So I developed an addiction to finding sadness in the world and I do it today. I go out in the world and I play for, how do I not do it right? I can do it on a minute-to-minute basis. And that just comes from my thinking addiction. And so when I can see that today, I can choose a behavior of accountability and say, I'm doing it again. And what's interesting is, is and, and you did this at just when you, when you uh, externalized how you were feeling before this, Andrew, you, by doing it that way, Someone like me can say, I've listened to your podcast and it's fantastic. Now I'm not here to just placate to your, your ego, but understand that this is a human connecting with you and saying you do a really good service and you do it, do it in an awesome manner. And you get to then, your little limbic system that was telling you, what was the story? Oh, you're not gonna do it right, no one cares, no one wants to listen. You've reshaped that because you you told on yourself and it doesn't happen on day one, I wish it could. You know, and there's no pill that will give you this. We don't even need to get into pharmacology, but that's a whole other podcast. If you want, if you really want to get me, me, me me angry, you know, is this concept that a pill is going to fix me? I mean, I was on every antidepressant I think known to man since I was, you know, eighteen or twenty years old. Mm. Yeah, I take nothing today. I haven't had a mind altering substance except for caffeine, and since April third of twenty eighteen. This is a guy who couldn't not take something on a minute-to-minute basis. Mm. You know, I was a garbage pail of of substances. You know, and and my my story went dark. You know, and I know you talked to Matt. But, you know, I went dark, and you know, and that that's okay. You know, I wear that as kind of a well. You know, I I can understand and I can empathize with a, a much broader class of individual today because I've been there. You know. You, As an emergency doctor, I see all kinds of walks of life and I can say, I get it. And, you know, patients appreciate that. There's a transparency, there's an empathy, there's an understanding and knowing that we're not bad people. I'm not a bad person because I have a, you know, proclivity to alcohol and drugs and maladaptive. I like the word maladaptive, you know, but but problematic behaviors, you know, that doesn't make me a bad person. It doesn't condone the, the stuff that was done. And I've owned up to that. You know, I've owned up to my, I've made my amends, you know, and this is part of the process, you know, giving back. So that's a living amends that I'll continue until I, I pass away. So, yeah, I, I, I like to keep things simple. I think Plus, that's what
1: you said real quick for people listening. Yeah. You know, there's this, this stigma around alcoholism and addiction. You know, you see the, the guy, the homeless guy asking for money and automatically we we, we create a story in our mind. Like he must've been using drugs and alcohol and you know, pissed his life away, whatever that story is that we create. And it comes back to this. We're not bad people trying to get well, or we're not bad people trying to get good. We're sick people trying to get well. And I think there's something, and that's why I'm having you on uh, Dr. Andrew, because like you have, you are uniquely qualified because you've gotten your ass kicked and you were, you had that gift of desperation. I've had other people on who didn't have addiction as part of their story, but they were in the medical field and they spoke to it. And for me, it just, there's a relatability with having you on because when you've gotten your ass kicked and you've had that gift of desperation, that empathy and compassion you now have when you go visit people in the um, ICU, that's you being of service. Yeah.
0: Yeah it's it's fascinating you know the human the human component you know human beings by our our, our nature are connecting individuals like we we our, our caveman ancestors started with with needing to connect for survival and i truly believe that at our core all humans want to connect with one another and actually what i see sadly is so many external things going on in the world that people use to do the opposite of that they use it to disconnect cell phone um, social media, you know, um, uh, emotional addictions to victim and self righteous. I mean, go on social media. You know, I, I, you know, I, I do Twitter uh, mostly. I, I do it almost solely for recovery purposes. And and when I, if you were to read every tweet I've ever done, it's it. I, I suspect that you would see that it's it's about my experience and how I can kind of give back to a broad, a broad, you know, following of people. So you know. There are great things about what we've done in this world, especially with social media, we can reach out. I mean, this podcast can go, I think you're 70 some odd countries or probably more now. I mean, 95, 95. so 95 countries can, can listen to this, you know? So think of the, 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 reach, you know, and that's awesome. And we still have to, to identify what are we, what is our behavior's purpose, and that's what I ask myself today. Is there a selfish part of my behavior or is this a selfless? And, you know, I'm not on a pedestal. I mean, I absolutely have selfish behaviors. I still exercise pretty consistently, even though my kid might want to go, you know, practice driving. You know, I I identify that there has to be a selfish component to my own personal recovery so that I can stay on top. You know, we always say that what we put in front of our sobriety, you know, we're going to lose. And the reality is, is that if I don't keep, and I like to say emotional sobriety, you know, if I don't keep emotional sobriety at the forefront of who I'm being in the world today, there's a really good chance that I'll eventually get back to the physical behaviors that almost killed me, you know, and I don't, I don't have another drink in me. (laughs) I proved that on my last, my last run, you know, And it is what it is. And it's it's disheartening to see that, that we don't, you know, we don't have the framework set up to support people in what we're speaking to right now. You know, emotional sobriety is free, but there has to be some accessibility and people have to understand that. And I love podcasts like this, that you know people are going to start to hear the the term Mm -hmm. or, or make up your own term. It doesn't really matter, but understand that that being accountable to the fact that my feelings are coming from me and my interpretation, which is my thoughts, those are all Andrew. Dr. Andrew goes out in the world and he interprets the world, what he sees, what he hears, what he reads. He then creates feeling from that. And then there's the behavior. And it's in the behavior that anyone who's alcoholic or a drug addict finds problems. (laughs) That's not to say that I can be emotionally sober to the point where I can drink again. I, I can't, I can't, I, that's why I don't take any mind altering substances. You know, I do drink caffeine, you know, but outside of that, as do I. Right, 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 right. Well, you know, I mean, if you're an ER doctor and you're not drinking caffeine, I mean, there's gotta be something wrong with you right No. no, but I, you know, again, but I'm not drinking 30 cups of coffee a day, you know, so I understand that my, my emotional state is on me and the people I choose to put in my life, you know, plays a role in how I am, the conversations I'm willing to have, the vulnerability, you know, when I think of words that kind of sum up recovery to me, accountability is probably number one, you know, but I also bring up things like integrity, you know, today, when I say I'm going to do something, I'll do it. You wanted me on a podcast. I said, I can commit to 4 p.m. And I logged on at 3.58, you know, the reality is, is that's integrity, honesty, you know sitting here and being honest with you despite my fear that people will hear this and they might judge me and they might have negative you know thoughts about emergency physicians and how we're doctors and we shouldn't have problems with drugs and alcohol which again it's all stigma i'm no different than anyone else i proved that over and over again vulnerability is a word that means a lot to me today that means can i be vulnerable will i take risks you know empathy we could all use a little more empathy in this world, couldn't we? You know, when you see that person on the street and you start to scoff at them, look at the political stuff that's going back and forth, you know, where's the empathy? You know, let's let's look at it. If we looked at all of us in this world as products of childhood experiences, mm. and I would say if we, if we looked through the lenses of adverse childhood experiences, I think we'd have a different experience ourselves.
1: Mm. We
0: would say, I'm not going to condone the behavior that I'm seeing. But I'd also like to acknowledge that there might be a solution for this individual. We might be able to help this individual get healthy.
1: Let's and I'd say transparency. Let's stick with vulnerability. Yeah, this is a great that's thing. a tough one. <laughs> I want to acknowledge you because in your in your um, you know your YouTube video that you spoke to a pretty large audience. That you know, that's how I got involved with you more intimately for this interview. I really want to acknowledge you again because you talk about you know, your relationship with your daughter and her struggles with anxiety. And here's why it's so important. I have a lot of my coaching clients that I work with are young adults, men and women, teens and tweens, and the mental health, the anxiety, especially after the last two and a half years, you know, ages 10 through 16, 18. But you talking about your relationship with your daughter and her struggles I think it's so powerful. And so can you talk about that dynamic, including, most importantly, how you support her and how you encourage her to lean in versus distract for parents listening?
0: Yeah, that's great. You know, it's interesting. After I did my talk, you know, I always beat myself up. Shocker, right? My yeah. thought addiction is I don't do it right. I didn't do it good enough. <laughs> so, you know, I, I asked my daughter, I said, are you okay with me sharing some experiences? You know, my mother was the one that pointed that out to me that I, I'm not sure I'd asked. And, and she is okay with it. You know, here's the reality. My daughter's um, addiction, I don't say addiction to anxiety, is a perfect example of what I'm speaking to. You know, she was raised in a very chaotic environment. You know, her mother and I got divorced at an early age. I think she was in her, you know, two or maybe three. I wasn't present. I was actively, you know, working all the time. And when I wasn't working, I was, you know, off in my chaotic brain and and there was, you know, drugs and alcohol and, and problematic other behaviors that were going on. So to this little girl who just wants two loving parents, she definitely wasn't getting that from dad. You know, she didn't know when dad was gonna show up. And when he showed up, you know, what capacity did I have to connect with my daughter? You know, if you ask her today, she'd say, "Oh, you were always awesome, Dad." That's probably her rescuing me. You know, and at the end of the day, I own it. I mean, how can you truly be present for your child if you're if you're drinking or taking drugs? It, it's just not a thing. And so, when I got well, you know, and you want to talk about my commitment, people ask me, "Well, how did you know? What was your early recovery?" And I'll just if you if you're okay with it, I'll just share what my my early recovery looked like. So bear in mind, I'm an emergency doctor at the local emergency department here in New Hampshire. I went to rehab, and then I actually went to sober living about 20 miles away from my own house. I didn't move home. My daughter, by the grace of of my higher power, we have an awesome human in in her life that was taking care of her during this time. But I knew that I had to get well emotionally first before I had the right, and I'm going to say right, to take my daughter back and actually show up for her in the capacity that I show up for her today. So I spent an entire 13 months in sober living. Five of those months, I actually managed my, I actually managed a sober house. You know, so, and and bear in mind, I was riding my bike to work because I'd had a DUI you know on my last you know my last few you know few months of my 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 last run I wound up getting a DUI so I lost access to to driving privileges which is a that's that's the right action and so I'm riding my bike to work I'm living in a sober house as an emergency physician in the community that I live in. You know, you want to talk about an ego punch. Go ride your bike past the firehouse that you're in charge of as the EMS director. That's an ego punch. But here's the reality. All those experiences and my commitment to to my initial days of sobriety, that is why I'm still sober today. That's why I had the foundation that I do. And that's why I attack it. And, And I started off saying I don't like the word attack, but I do. I wake up every morning and I attack emotional sobriety because I don't want to go back there. I don't wanna go back to the darkness. I've been there, done that, I checked that off. My resume is complete with that. So let's build something great. So getting back to your question, my daughter developed anxiety because her life was chaos. And what's interesting is when I got her back into my life and we brought her into my house, you know, it was just her and me. And she became almost obsessive about her anxiety. And I asked myself, well, what's going on? It's not that my daughter likes what anxiety feels like. It's that that's what she knows. Mm -hmm. So her subconscious, right? This is not at a conscious level is going to go out in the world and find reasons to worry. And that's it. Just like I went out in the world and found reasons to feel sad. My brother talks about his addiction to anxiety. He and I grew up in the same household, but he had a different experience and he plays for anxiety every day. And he'll tell you that. For some reason, I got, you know, I got more into the I didn't do it right and and, uh, and the sadness, you know, but it doesn't really matter what the emotional state is, is that becomes an addiction. It's a subconscious circuit. And I, I should specify that we talk about the science of addiction and understand that thought addictions, emotional addictions, behaviors, you know, these are operating at a subconscious level. You know, initially it's conscious. My first drink of alcohol when I was, I think I was 17, that was a conscious choice. But when I crossed into the alcoholic brain, whatever that that is in the neurocircuitry of the brain, I lost access to choice. And my my reward circuit just continuously told me, go find more alcohol or drugs or whatever that was. Go find more comfort. And this is where you found your last comfort. So let's go there.
1: Mm.
0: When you get physically sober, and this is why I tell people it's very hard to get emotionally sober if you're not physically sober. I'd almost say it's next to impossible. And that brings up a whole nother conversation about things like medication assisted therapy um, treatment, you know, so different, different talk, you know, I'd be willing to have that talk because I have my own own thoughts on it, but here's the reality is that it's a subconscious circuit. And once we get physically sober, it becomes conscious again. So every day I wake up, it's a conscious choice to do the behaviors that are in alignment with me not drinking today and me not taking drugs today, you know, and that's the accountability factor. So for my daughter, you know, she, she would sit here as a 15-and-a-half-year-old and tell you that life's awesome. She had a tough, tough 10 years. Her first 10 years was chaos. And so what we do together as a dad-daughter team is that we have an open dialogue. And when I, can, when I see her have a behavior that I, I'm using, remember, I'm interpreting it as her struggle, I ask her, hey, are you struggling? I feel that you're struggling. Is there any truth to that? My daughter and I have a relationship today of transparency and honesty. She called me her best friend. I I don't know how many 15 and a half year old girls out there think their dad's their best friend, but she says I'm her person. And that, you know, that obviously that touches me to the core, but it also speaks to what emotional sobriety and physical sobriety, but emotional sobriety can do for someone. So if you're out there listening and you're, struggling with alcohol, drugs, other problematic behaviors, and you feel disconnected from the world and your family and your, your kids and your work environment, there is a solution. It does require effort. It requires absolute accountability and it requires, it requires putting down the substance if that's your
1: issue, you know? So, yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. And uh, my eyes are watering.
0: I started to feel there. I was Whoa. like, Oh, I got to hold back the tears Whoa. here,
1: right? I love it, right? You're We're professionals. You're embodying it. vulnerability. And like, that's yeah. what, like, I'm telling you, like, seven and a half years ago, when I first got sober, I tapped into a part of me that has was um, dormant for a long time, because everything was stuffed and repressed and avoided and numbed. And so over the last seven and a half years, even today, which I love, I get to tap into that, those emotions of like, man, your story that you just shared with your daughter hit me in the heart. And I love it. And I have, I'm able to feel it today because I'm physically sober and more importantly, emotionally sober. So I'm here present with you and it lands. <clears throat> And people listening, I know it lands for them as well, because there's a lot of kids struggling right now. And parents, parents are are not, they don't know what to do. And like you sharing that gives them permission that they're not broken. You know, there's nothing wrong with them. And there's a solution.
0: You know, it's funny. I've been, uh, you know, shocker, right? I do overwhelm pretty well. You know, one, one of the great things about being a, an effective addict like me is that when you take the the problematic behaviors out and you realign them into behaviors consistent with growth and connection is that you do a lot. And so you have a lot of capacity. And so I sit on uh, a wellness committee for the local region for the schools and, and we're batting around this, this right now. You know, we're trying to figure out how do we get how do we introduce these concepts to younger people, you know, and, and I've given my talk to a prep school. So you've got that dynamic, you know, on 14 to 18 year olds, but how do we, how do we start batting around the concept of, of childhood experiences and, and getting it out there? You know, it's, this doesn't start at 14. I mean, this starts at two or one, and it's not, I always emphasize, you know, this isn't, Talking about adverse childhood experiences, goal is not to beat up the parent. You know, it's to acknowledge that as little little baby brains, we're very impressionable. That's what happens. We experience things and we don't understand. And there's repetition in them. And so, understanding that those those can have consequences. You know, negative or positive. You know, so and then understanding that going back in the past is is going to be important to a point. You know, we have to go back in the past when we get, you know, physically sober, you got to go back in the past and understand where these thinking addictions started, you know, and then identify the emotional component to it because thoughts have emotional component. There is no, you know, I always use the bear analogy. If I'm hiking in the woods and I see a bear, I don't know if I'll ever be emotionally sober enough to not feel fear. That's going to be a reflex, you know, or if I give a talk, you know, here's a, here's a, this might be an aside, but this is important. You know, you ask about being vulnerable at the beginning of a talk and saying, hey, I, I, I'm going to screw this up. That's the story I, I create. So when I first started doing talks, you know, probably a year into my recovery, I gave a science of addiction talk for my hospital. That's a vulnerability, first of all, because I'm kind of outing myself amongst my colleagues and my peers. And so I had a different experience back then than I do today. You know, when I give a talk, I mean, I get exhilarated. And so what I'm getting at is that limbic system, that part of the brain that wants to continue to keep the circuit going, which is Andrew's not good enough, and he should go ahead and continue to feel sad, has transformed. Now, it took me doing lots of engagements and pushing against that narrative that I have, that I'm not going to do it right to get to the place that I'm at today. This is where the work takes place. This is work. But
1: it's fascinating and i'll also share this is that when question you do is this, that is that new neural pathways yeah neuroplasticity that, okay neuroplasticity yeah. neuroplasticity
0: is the creation of new neural pathways in the brain and it's a thing i mean it clearly is because i'm living proof of it <laughs>
1: So for people listening this is so important what you are saying and what i hear you saying is when we become aware of those thoughts I think we have 80,000 of thoughts per day. 95% of those thoughts are the same today as they were yesterday. So when we become aware of our thoughts, is the, that's the first step. And then changing those thoughts through changed behaviors, new practicing new ways of being in the moment. Okay. Thought, I'm not good enough. Uh, I'm unlovable. I'm still getting on the podcast with Dr. Andrew today. I'm creating a new neural pathway and it gets reinforced in that moment. And the more I take that new behavior and practice and put more repetitions into that new behavior, that new way of being, I'm creating new neural pathways and it's easier for me to get into that new place the more we do it.
0: Absolutely. You know, I like to think of it as a a capacitor, you know, my emotional capacity, you know, it grows as I continue to do this work. And my ability to, to sit in emotional states and not have to distract grows and speaking to the transformation that you're, you're, you're acknowledging with the the brain chemistry is that each time you change, when you, when you consistently change, it's like lifting weights, you know, if you continue to lift weights, you will build muscle, Mm. you know, and so the same is going on for the brain when we are choosing behaviors like you did of accountability, owning it, putting it out to the universe. Here's the reality. The universe may come back to you and say, yeah, Andrew, I, I don't like your podcast. I think it's terrible. Well, okay, now we can work with that though, right? I can go to that nurse and say, hey, I, I I used those words and made myself not a good doctor today. Is there a truth to that? And she might look at me and say, you're a terrible doctor. But my experiences is this, is that the thoughts that I have usually have no truth to them. And it's often contrary to what I'm actually thinking. In fact, I am good enough and I do it actually quite well. And people are shocked and amazed that I even have that negative self-talk. But here's one thing I'm gonna share with you. I've shared a lot. Andrew, when you do this type of work, you give the other individual opportunity to look at themselves. And that's where, that's fascinating when people go, oh, I do that too. And now you can connect at a whole new level. I've done this with with bosses, administrators, and, and you have a connection with another human and you say, I get that. You know, I do a newsletter every month. When I took over as director of the ER right at the beginning, like 2020, October, right in the middle of the first crazy pandemic wave, all that stuff, I committed to doing a newsletter of every single month. And I've done it, you know, every single month. But I do a director's message at the beginning of every newsletter. And I'm very vulnerable and I speak emotional sobriety, you know, concepts about how we connect with one another, how can we communicate to support one another and our patients. I do that because it's my way of saying, hey, I've got a platform, let's go ahead and get this message out. And people are reading and they're understanding and they're saying, hey, maybe I can do this. You know, maybe I can, I can join the the emotional sober club. If the whole world is emotionally sober, imagine what that would be. Mm-hmm. I had a DEA agent. This is fascinating. A DEA agent looked at me in a. Uh, I was uh, sitting on a panel for drug abuse, drug addiction, whatnot, and <laughs> so he did his whole talk on how oh, they're you know they got all these drug houses and put all these people in jail and and whatnot, and and I got up there and I I said, well, I'm really excited that you know you, you guys are doing good work and you're you're protecting us. And I said, you know, what's interesting is if we, because his his whole premise is how do we get these suppliers? How do we get the cartels? How do we get the suppliers? And I said, well, what if we just made all the demanders emotionally sober? And he kind of looked at me like, what? And people were like, what? I said, if we were emotionally sober, we wouldn't, emotionally sober people won't abuse drugs today. They're okay with how they're feeling. Emotionally sober people won't abuse alcohol today. They're okay with how they're feeling. No matter what the feelings, we would we would get rid of the need for you know enforcement because they'd be out of business. Now I mean that's obviously a pipe dream, right? I mean I'm not you know I, I that but that that's that's the stand I'm taking for in terms of my work. You know I might as well you know hey if we're gonna go big let's go big. You know so how can we get this message out to the world to help people see that despite their thinking and their emotional states. They don't have to choose behaviors that are going to disconnect them and possibly kill them or others.
1: Yeah. I really appreciate like your people can feel, I know people listening can feel your enthusiasm and your passion that you have for this. And so, and I love the fact that you're using your platform for good and in a responsible way because the world in your community communities everywhere Needs this message, and it's not just it's not talking about the problem and and you know not having solutions. It's shining the light of awareness on the problem, and here are the solutions, and here's what's worked in your life, my life, um, and in the lives of others. And one of the things, one of your intentions. And questions that you ask yourself that for people listening, if you have a pen and piece of paper, I want you to write this down because what Dr. Andrew does is he asks himself, who do I need to be to affect the adaptive changes I want to see? I'm going I'm to say that one more time. Who do I need to be to affect the adaptive changes I want to see? And if that's we it. if we all asked ourselves that question which you know I'm I'm kind of a, a geek out on the the buddhist stuff and uh you know being the change i want to see in the world that's kind of my mantra and, and our mantras are basically the same thing and it's and it comes back to your accountability integrity honesty vulnerability empathy
0: I, you know, when I, I, I might have looked you up a few times too, Andrew, and and one of my favorite quotes is to be the change you want to see in the world. I, I love it. and I love that you love it. You know, so every day I wake up, I ask myself the same question is that, you know, who do I need to be to, to create the world that I wish I was living in? You know, we see so much chaos on a day-to-day basis. And it's not just political, economic, I mean, it's just chaos. And I think I see it, you know, through the lenses of an emergency doctor, I see it at a a real visceral level, you know, I I can feel it, I can feel the the breakdowns going around for, for people's mental and physical health. And I ask myself, who do I need to be to affect those changes, you know, and so I think part of part of the process is doing stuff like this you know, do I want to be vulnerable? Oh, geez. I think my core says, no, I, I, I don't, you know, because I'm afraid I'm going to screw it up, which is more reason for me to go and do it. You know, I always say the opposite, (laughs) you know, usually my, my brain is going to tell me to do things that are going to make me and keep me comfortable. Mm -hmm. So take a risk fail forward. I think Denzel Washington said that. I I listened to something. Fail forward. I get it. You know, life's not about trophies. We're not always going to get a trophy. And you might get a very big trophy at the end. The reality is, is fail forward, take risks, be vulnerable, externalize the internal, which again, people look at me sometimes, what does that mean? When you're feeling so, when you're with your loved ones or you're in a, in a situation and you're, and you're feeling something you don't like telling yourself, Give, give the other individual or individuals opportunity to open up a,
1: a, a dialogue and actually say, hey, maybe me too. My buddy calls that pulling the pants down of our ego. Nice. <laughs> That's great. Pulling the pants down of our ego. Like, oh, here's what I'm thinking. I'm, I want to verbalize it and vocalize it because it loses its power. And it's reinforcing a positive new behavior and new neural pathway because we're not letting that thought run rampant and create a negative feedback loop. There you go. Neuroplasticity baby. 101. Come on, man. Right? All right, yeah. man, last question. And I appreciate sure. you being here this uh this podcast. I know 95 countries people listening, people sober curious, people thriving in recovery, people who just acknowledge that they have a a unhealthy relationship with their social media, like whatever it is, I know people are getting massive value because we're putting goodness into the world today. So thank you. Thank you. The most important question to end with, who wins in a fight? You or your brother?
0: Oh, I, I gotta be honest. I think my brother would take me. I mean, he is just, uh, yeah, <laughs> he, uh, he loves David Goggins. He's He's always, uh, he came out, I I recently, you know, well, here's another, uh, let me just share this. We've got two seconds. I got married to an amazing woman just October. Actually, we got married last uh, January, but we had our ceremony on October 14th. And that's, that, that just speaks to, to what recovery does. You know, I, I recovery has given me an opportunity to be vulnerable and to be lovable. You know, I didn't love myself for a decade or more. And the person I am in this world, I've attracted, you know, humans that that really want to connect with me. I have a robust friend network today, you know, because of who I'm being in this world. And I show up for them. And I have an amazing wife. And I said at the beginning of this, you know, she does this work with me, which again, you know, emotional sobriety work as a couple is phenomenal.
1: Mm-hmm. Because
0: you, you just you just connect at a different level, you know, and, and she is amazing. So my brother comes out for my wedding. <laughs> <laughs> and I see him out there, and I mean, he is jacked. I mean, he is in good shape, you know. And I work out. I, I definitely have that exercise addiction. But I also, you know, food is always somewhat there. And my wife, God bless her, she is an amazing cook. And so I come home from a busy shift, and it's like, oh, good, I get all this food, right? So yes, I think my brother wholeheartedly would would take me. But you know, I I, I say my brother would would would. We, we, we have a, a stronger connection today and as identical twins, we've always been connected, but, you know, during, during our addiction, you know, we enable our, each other's addictions quite a lot. And that's a whole nother podcast, you know, and I would say that, you know, my capacity to love my brother is, is grown, you know, tenfold as a result of just being emotionally sober and him too. So it's pretty phenomenal. My capacity, capacity to love myself and love the world grows by the day, you know, and the, and the only requisite is to keep doing this, You know, stay accountable, keep understanding, you know, my parting words to the world is that, you know, no one makes you feel anything, you know, we interpret the world, and then we generate our thoughts and feelings as as our interpretations. And uniformly, our thoughts, our initial thoughts and our reactive feelings are askewed. And that's where the breakdown occurs, It's the behaviors that are employed to quiet down that chaos, that is our responsibility.
1: And that's it. And we're always in control of that third column. There, you know, yes. the thoughts, first column, emotions, second column, third column, behaviors. And there is just our control. Behaviors are within our control. And for people listening, change your behavior, change your life. New practicing new ways of being to get out of the negative feedback loop by taking a different action a new behavior to create new neural pathways, repetitions. The more we do it, the stronger it gets. We're in control. You can do it. Love it. Andrew, you, 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 you don't need me. You, you speak the, you speak the emotional sobriety language. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you coming on brother. I just want to acknowledge, I want to acknowledge you just one more time for all the work you're doing. The service um, I see you, man, and uh, you're you're making a you're having a positive impact in the community. That's why you're on, and uh, love your work.
0: Thank you, thank you, my brother. And I will tell you this is that I'm gonna feel that I can feel that today, and I can say thank you for the acknowledgement. Absolutely. All right. All
1: right, everybody listening, thank you. I'll put in the show notes where you can find Dr. Andrew Seafield so you can follow his great work. And uh, until next week, much love, friends. Hey friends, wow, I hope you received as much value in that episode as I did. Dr. Andrew Seafeld, expert, great value, great contribution, doing great things in the world. And one of the things we talked about, creating new neural pathways in the brain neuroplasticity, the brain being transformed to work for us, not against us. And the reason, the the way we do that is taking new behaviors, creating new ways of being, practicing new habits so our thoughts and emotions and feelings don't run wild and create a negative feedback loop that we can't get out of. New behaviors, new rituals, new habits, new ways of being. This is what I do with all my private one-on-one coaching clients in my positive impact transformational coaching program. So if this is you and you want to transform your behaviors, reach out to me. Let's set up a 30 minute connection call together. If you're struggling with emotional sobriety, send me a message. Let's jump on a 30 minute connection call. If you're a parent of a young adult, a teen or tween who is struggling with an addiction, mental, their mental health, destructive behaviors, this is what I do. I would love the opportunity to talk with you and be of service to support you and empower you. We are not our thoughts. We are not our emotions. And we create our reality through our behaviors. So important. Creating new behaviors, new ways of being, new habits that are positive and healthy to replace the self-destructive and the negative habits that create negative consequences in our life. This is what I do as a certified transformational life coach. I specialize in behavior change, creating new neural pathways, new brain circuitry. So best way to contact me, Instagram, Positive Andrew. Website, theandrewschultz.com. Looking forward to doing it again next week. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year to everybody. Sending everybody lots of love. See ya.